This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu. The World Beyond the Headlines Lecture Series is a collaborative project of the University of Chicago Center for International Studies and the International House Global Voices Program. Our nationally recognized programming is made possible with support from listeners like you. Secure the future of World Beyond the Headlines programming by making your gift online at alumniservices.uchicago.edu slash giving. Please specify World Beyond the Headlines as the area of giving. The World Beyond the Headlines lecture series is supported by the McCormick Foundation, the Norman Wade Harris Fund, and generous contributions from listeners like you. So tonight we're fortunate to have both Jonathan Mahler and Neil Katyal with us to discuss Jonathan Mahler's latest book, The Challenge, Hamden v. Rumsfeld and the Fight Over Presidential Power. The book chronicles the defense of Salam Hamdan by military defense lawyer Lieutenant Commander Charles Swift and Georgetown Constitutional Law Scholar Neil Katyal. Together, they sued the President of the United States on behalf of Hamdan, an accused terrorist, in order to prevent the American government from breaking the law and violating the Constitution. In the spring of 2006, Katyal argued the case Hamdan v. Rumsfeld before the Supreme Court and won. Mahler wrote Hamdan v. Rumsfeld with the cooperation of Swift and Katyal in addition to extensive interviews in Yemen and Guantanamo Bay. He is a writer for the New York Times Magazine and is the author of Ladies and Gentlemen, The Bronx is Burning. Both books are available for purchase after the talk outside. We'll first hear from Jonathan Mahler, and following his talk, um, both of our participants will be answering questions and have you know, an interactive discussion. So please join me in welcoming Jonathan Mahler. Hi. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I'm going to just sort of talk a little bit about the book. I'm going to read a little bit from the book to give you some sort of flavor of the book. Uh, and um, we're, we're lucky that um, one of the two main characters of the book is, is here tonight, Neil uh, Katyal, who is, uh, will probably say a few words when I'm done. And, and then we're happy to take questions uh, of any sort. Uh, the, book, the book began really uh, with a magazine story that I wrote back in 2004. I'm, I'm a writer for the New York Times Magazine by day. And uh, the, the article was, was a profile of a Navy JAG, a Navy lawyer by the name of Charlie Swift, Lieutenant Commander Charles Swift. And um, I had been sent down to Washington to profile Swift because he had just been assigned, uh, he had just been appointed to a, a new office inside the Pentagon, the Office of Military Commissions. And this office had been created because in the aftermath of 9-11, the president had uh, sort of authorized the creation of military tribunals, the, the country's first military tribunals in, in more than 50 years, in which uh, selected, suspected terrorists who were captured in, in the war on terror would be tried. And Swift, uh, was one of uh, a, a very, very small group of, of military lawyers who'd been chosen to, to actually uh, serve, serve as a defense lawyer in these military tribunals. So the, the operating assumption uh, at the time uh, among, among many people and, and certainly inside the government was that uh, as, as a Navy lawyer, as a Navy officer, as, as Swift was, 
he would uh, basically roll over and do whatever the government wanted to do, wanted him to do, which in, in this case was was actually to encourage his client uh, Salam Hamdan, who I'll, I'll tell you more about uh, a little bit later, to encourage Hamdan to plead guilty. Uh, but I, I, as as I went uh, spent a little time with Swift down in Washington, it. it, it very quickly became apparent that that was not at all what Swift intended to do. Uh, in fact, what Swift was planning to do uh, was not only defend Hamdan on the, on, on the facts of the case, on the merits of the case, which is to say, argue that Hamdan was innocent, that he was basically a civilian, uh, he, Hamdan himself was, was, a, uh, had, had, was, was a, a driver for bin Laden, and Swift was going to argue that he was really a civilian employee for bin Laden, that he had not uh, participated in, in any of uh, the um, al-Qaeda conspiracies, uh, or, or any of the, certainly in any of the attacks, and that in fact he really had very little idea what was going on inside the organization. Uh, but Swift was not only planning to, to, to argue his innocence, he was planning to uh, sue the Bush administration on behalf of this guy, arguing that this very trial system in which he was to be prosecuted was illegal. And to do that, Swift had, had uh, brought aboard Neil Katyal, a constitutional law professor at Georgetown. So, so needless to say, it, was, uh, uh, it sort of came as a big surprise to everyone uh, that, that these were uh, Swift's plans. And uh, my story was published back, uh, back in the spring of, of 2004. And the, the headline was Commander Swift Objects. Uh, which sort of gives you some sense of, of the, the thrust of the story. And um, at that point, I sort of realized that I was at the beginning of, of an interesting story and that um, I wanted to kind of follow it from there, uh, which is what I did. And uh, the, the story uh, sort of, in a sense, kind of became two different stories. Uh, one was uh, the story of, of Swift and, uh, and his client, Salam Hamdan, and, uh, and their, their relationship, their, really their extraordinary relationship. And um, uh, uh, I'll give you a little, a little sense of, of Hamdan. I was not allowed to, to interview Hamdan um, personally uh, because journalists are not allowed to speak with the detainees on Guantanamo Bay. So, uh, so I, I was only able to kind of catch him visually in, in glimpses in, in, in the courtroom down there. Um, so uh, sort of to assemble my portrait of him, I, uh, I had to rely on, on the lawyers, the translator, uh, and, uh, and I went to Yemen for a couple weeks and spent time with Hamdan's family and, and friends and, and got a chance to kind of see the world that, that he had come from. And uh, that world was, was basically, well, his story begins um, in a small, small tribal village in southeastern Yemen called the Hydromount, where he was born in, in, uh, in the late 1960s. And um, he was born to a, a very poor family. And uh, both of his parents died at a very young age, when, when he was at a very young age, so he was orphaned at an early age, uh, was uneducated, had uh, spent, uh, had, a, had the rough equivalent of a fourth grade education. And uh, after his parents died, he, he sort of drifted around Yemen for, for a number of years uh, before uh, before eventually, uh, at the age of around 20, making his way to the capital city of Yemen, Sana'a. And uh, he hoped that, that in Sana'a he might be able to, to find employment and, and maybe kind of find a purpose to his life. Uh, but, but as it turned out, um, the, the unemployment in Yemen is, is extraordinarily high, and he didn't have any education to speak of, any skills to speak of, aside from his ability to drive and, and fix cars. So, uh, so he became a, a, essentially a part-time taxi driver. He lived in a, in, a, in a boarding house, on a mattress in a crowded boarding house, and he uh, spent, uh, spent whatever, little, whatever income he had uh, on uh, a, a narcotic plant that everyone in, in Yemen chews called Kat. 
so that was Hamdan's life, more or less, when, uh, when he met a man in uh, 1996 who was putting together a group of jihadis to go to, uh, uh, to, to go, go, uh, uh, to, to go fight in Tajikistan, in fact. And, um, and this, this notion of, of jihad was, was certainly on some level appealing to Hamdan for a, a man who, who really had no purpose uh, to his life, uh, who was told that this, you know, this was something, uh, this was something meaningful. And, uh, and it was a job, it was something to do. Uh, his travel would be paid for, he'd be given a, a salary. So he joined this group of jihadis and uh, they met up in Afghanistan, started making their way to the border of Tajikistan, but they were unable to get through so unable to get into Tajikistan after many months of, of, of traveling. So they were kind of casting around trying to figure out what to do and, and one of the jihadis suggested that they go see a man, uh, a sheikh who had just set up shop in Afghanistan by the name of Osama bin Laden. Uh, now, as I mentioned, this was back in 1996 before bin Laden uh, became the international celebrity that he is today. Uh, but uh, Hamdan and, and, and this group of jihadis made their way to, to bin Laden and uh, bin Laden preached to them about uh, sort of joining, uh, joining him and, and, and remaining with him and staying on and, and working for him. And Hamdan did so, and, and he stayed there for, uh, for, for five years until the aftermath of 9-11, of uh, when, when he was picked up uh, uh, near the border of Pakistan in, in November of 2001. He spent about uh, six months in Afghanistan before being sent to Guantanamo Bay and uh, was on Guantanamo Bay for quite some time and uh, quite a bit of that time also in, in solitary confinement before, uh, before a man walked into his, uh, his cell in a military uniform and uh, introduced himself as, as Lieutenant Commander Charles Swift and said he was there to, to, to defend him. So I'm now going to read that, that, the passage from the book which, uh, in which I kind of tell the story of, of the first meeting between Swift and Hamdan. And um, just, just to give you a, uh, a little more, more background, this was, uh, uh, Hamdan was, was, had at this point been in US custody for a couple of years. He'd been interrogated literally dozens of times. Uh, we don't know exactly how many times because his, his CIA uh, interrogations are, are not, uh, not public. Um, but, but he'd been interrogated certainly dozens of times uh, by men in military uniforms. And, and, and now, after, after uh, spending a couple of months in solitary confinement, uh, a man in a military uniform was a, is about to walk into his cell and say, oh, no, I'm, I'm the guy you can actually trust. Uh, so Swift certainly had his work cut out for him, uh, particularly because in his, uh, when, when he was appointed to represent Hamdan, the government told him that he could uh, go down and, and meet with Hamdan, of course, for the purpose of negotiating a guilty plea. So it was really the government's assumption that that's what, Hamdan, that that's what Swift intended to do, to encourage Hamdan to plead guilty. Uh, of course, that isn't what Swift wanted to do, uh, but he was concerned that this would potentially be his first and last meeting with his client, that after the government learned that he was actually gonna, gonna fight and uh, uh, protest his, his innocence, that, uh, that he might be cut off from his client. So, so he certainly had his work cut out for him. Uh, he also had, had brought along a, a translator, a guy named Chuck Schmitz, uh, who also uh, figures as, as something of an important character in the story because um, you know, Schmitz uh, uh, was, remained, uh, remained Swift's uh, translator for Hamdan uh, over the years. And, um, and in a sense was the one who really knew Hamdan best as he's the one who, who was able to kind of communicate directly with him. So, uh, so that's a little bit of, of the background and, and I'll, I'll read that. Uh, passage to you now. 
Guantanamo Bay Naval Base is divided into two areas, windward and leeward, by the two and a half mile wide bay for which it is named. The airport is on the leeward side. Nearly everything else is a short ferry ride away on the windward side. There are housing subdivisions, a few fast food restaurants, a strip mall, a bowling alley, a drive-in movie theater, and a neglected nine-hole golf course. The overall effect is small town America, if a sad and somewhat dated version of it. The whole base is about 45 square miles, or roughly the size of the island of Manhattan. After disembarking from the ferry, Swift and Schmitz made their way to the headquarters of the joint task force that runs the base. They happened to arrive in the midst of a drill to prepare for a terrorist attack. Roadblocks had been erected everywhere, and the female soldier charged with preparing their access badges was made up to look like a casualty. Theatrics that were hardly necessary to make this place one of the strangest either of them had ever been. Swift soon found his footing, though. Asked to sign a statement ensuring that he wouldn't say anything to the media about what they saw in Guantanamo, he insisted on amending the language to read that he wouldn't say anything, quote, in violation of the National Security Act. That evening, he and Schmitz went to the Marine Galley, which Swift had been told had decent food and a great view. It was surf and turf night, so they ate steak and lobster, followed by Ben and Jerry's Peace Pops, as they watched the sun drop down below the bay. Thirty-six hours later, they set out for Camp Delta in a rusty red van to meet Hamdan. From a distance, Swift could make out the plywood guard towers draped in American flags, and as they drew closer, the heavy chain-link fencing topped with concertina wire that ringed the camp. A four-by-eight-foot sign hung from the main entrance to Delta, honor bound to defend freedom, the motto for the Joint Task Force Guantanamo. Swift wore a khaki uniform rather than his dress whites because he wanted to seem as accessible as possible. At the entrance gate, he declined to place a strip of black tape over his name tag, the custom among most soldiers and officers, who prefer to keep their identities hidden from the suspected terrorists inside. For the past several weeks, ever since the president had designated him for trial by military commission, Hamdan had been in solitary confinement, or as the Defense Department called it, pre-commissioned confinement, in a separate area inside Delta known as Camp Echo. The administration didn't want the other detainees to know that he'd been assigned a lawyer, or worse, give him the chance to report to the rest of the prison population on the substance of their conversations. Swift and Schmitz were led down a long dirt path toward a cluster of eight cinder block huts with corrugated tin roofs that faced inward on a square. It hadn't rained on Guantanamo in weeks, and they kicked up small clouds of dust as they walked. The guards unlocked the door to Echo 3, and Swift got his first look at Hamdan, a small, frail-looking man, 5 feet 6 inches, 130 pounds, he estimated, in a baggy orange jumpsuit. He had a shaved head and a long beard and he was smiling. As Swift would later learn, Hamdan always smiled when he was nervous. The hut was divided in two by a heavy metal grate. On one side was a metal bed and stainless steel toilet. On the other were two abutting folding tables and three white plastic chairs. Solemn Hamdan sat at the opposite end of the tables beneath a bank of bright fluorescent lights. His hands and feet were bound to a chain around his waist, his ankles fastened to an eye bolt in the floor. An old air conditioning unit labored noisily against the stifling heat. I want him released from those chains, Swift said. We can't do that, one of the guards answered. After some debate, they agreed to at least unchain his hands. They asked Swift if he wanted one of them to remain in the cell, and Swift said no. 
They showed him the red panic button marked duress on the wall and left him alone with his client. I'm a military attorney and I've been appointed to represent you, Swift began. I can understand if you don't trust me right now. I work for the same people who are holding you here. He proceeded to detail his educational background and military rank, which an Arab culture expert had told Swift would impress Hamdan. They didn't seem to. Hamdan was polite but curt, insisting on a civilian lawyer. He wasn't any happier with Schmitz. He wanted an Arab translator. Swift asked for a chance to earn his trust. Whether Hamdan really believed that Swift was his lawyer, or more likely, just another interrogator, he was eager to rant about his mistreatment at the hands of the Americans. He told Swift that during his first several weeks in Bagram, he'd been stashed away in a dark cell in the basement of the prison when representatives from the International Committee of the Red Cross came through. Swift scribbled furiously onto a yellow legal pad as Hamdan spoke. About an hour into their two and a half hour meeting, Swift told Hamdan about the government's offer. 20 years for a guilty plea and full cooperation. What do they say I've done, Hamdan asked. They haven't charged you yet, Swift answered. They sent me here to negotiate a guilty plea. How can I plead guilty if I don't know what I've done, Hamdan asked. After a long pause, Hamdan asked Swift if he thought he should take the deal. Swift gave him his advice. These military commissions are presidential policy, and sooner or later the president is going to change. A different president may want to pursue a different foreign policy. If you plead guilty to something, no president is going to argue for your release. If you, it, it, on the other hand, if you plead not guilty, there's a very real possibility that someone in the future may release you. Swift then outlined for Hamdan the alternative to a guilty plea. He listed some of the rights under the Geneva Conventions and the Uniform Code of Military Justice that he believed Hamdan was entitled to, but had thus far been denied. It was unclear how much, if anything, Hamdan was grasping, yet Swift pressed on. The only way to get you these rights is to sue the Bush administration, he said. That's what I'd like to do, sue President Bush. Another long pause followed. This lawsuit, will it make you rich, Hamdan finally asked. No, Swift answered, but it might make me famous. Then he added, it might make you famous too. I don't want to be famous, Hamdan replied. I just want to get out of here. That night, Swift and Schmitz watched the Super Bowl on Armed Forces television, and the following day they returned to Camp Echo. At the end of the meeting, Swift told Hamdan they'd be back soon, and encouraged him to think about the government's offer in the interim. Do you believe we're here to help you, Swift asked, standing up to leave. A drowning man will grab onto any hand that's extended to him, Hamdan replied. So thus begins this, this extraordinary relationship between Swift and Hamdan that, that I chronicle in the book. And, and um, you know, to give you some sense of, of how extraordinary it was, I, Swift uh, visited Hamdan literally every, every month uh, for several days. And um, you know, he, he found a man uh, who was much of that, spent much of that time in solitary confinement, was, um, you know, was, was, was really losing, uh, losing control of his mental faculties, was losing his mind, um, and um, really had, had no contact with anyone else. So he, he took his, his frustrations and his anger and his mistreatment out on, out on his lawyer, of course, Swift. And uh, uh, and um, you know it's not not an overstatement really to say that that Swift um, it was really Swift's job to keep keep Hamdan alive down there. He went on on numerous hunger strikes, uh, one of which resulted in him being uh, uh, force-fed in a restraining chair um, uh, through a feeding tube inserted into his throat, and. Um, 
and he fired Swift repeatedly. Uh, yet, yet um, each time Swift would uh, would dutifully uh, return to Guantanamo Bay and and uh, and try to meet with Hamdan. Some, sometimes Hamdan would would send out a note saying that he was not willing to meet with him, but but Swift uh, would would persevere and uh, and um, and over the years, and it really was a matter of years. Uh, they they really built uh, uh, an intense relationship, and um, and I. I Chronicle that relationship in the book. Uh, now, that's sort of one one kind of part of the book, and and the other part of the book is 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 really the story of of the legal case itself, uh, the case Hamdan v. Rumsfeld, and um, and the case was was uh, led. The architect of the case is, is here with us, Neil Katyal, and um, and um, in in sort of simple terms, uh, what what the uh, what what the what the um, what, what, what they were arguing was, was to begin with that these military tribunals were illegal because the president had unilaterally authorized them uh, in the aftermath of 9-11, that he had not gone to Congress, the body that's, that's charged with, uh, with writing the laws, uh, so that he had, uh, in so doing, you know, violated, uh, violated the separation of powers. So that was sort of the, the overriding claim in their lawsuit. Uh, but um, additionally, they argued that, um, that the, tri the trials themselves, which is to say this, this trial system that the administration had, had unilaterally authorized and, and written and created, and which is to say that the Pentagon wrote the rules for the trials and, and the Pentagon decided uh, who would be tried and on what charges, and they, and they wrote these charges after the defendants were already in custody. Uh, that the rules for the trials fared, failed to comport with, with guarantees provided by the Geneva Conventions and, uh, and the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which is the U.S. law that, that governs military law, essentially. So, so, uh, so the lawsuit uh, uh, began in, in 2004 as well, and, and um, uh, just as I was, was starting the book, in fact, and, and to give you some sense of, of, of what a long shot it was, Back then, uh, the at, at the time the Bush administration was arguing, and, and really to, to great success in the federal courts, that Guantanamo detainees didn't even have the right to, to bring a lawsuit in federal court. That the federal judges didn't have the power to hear a claim from a detainee on Guantanamo Bay. And um, this was was the Bush administration's argument. And, and they every time, a, virtually every time, a detainee had tried to, to bring a lawsuit to challenge their their detention in federal court. The Bush administration had lawyers had made that argument, and, and they'd won. So it, it seemed very unlikely that they would even get a hearing in federal court. But um, but but lo and behold, uh, sh shortly after uh, uh, several months after their lawsuit was was filed, uh, the Supreme Court heard the first or, or decided the first case in in the war on terror, and 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 in, in the first of what would become really a string of of significant decisions in the war on terror, which. Um, you know, which to many of us have sort of blended together. Um, uh, there have been so many now, uh, but each one of them is, 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 is enormously significant in its own right. And this one, the Rasul decision, uh, basically said that, uh, that the courts were open to the Guantanamo detainees, that, uh, that the government could not prevent these guys from getting a hearing in federal court. So with that, their lawsuit was able to proceed. And what was happening really was the government was, was trying to push ahead with its, its military tribunal. They were trying to, to try Hamdan in, in, in what, what Katyal and Swift were arguing was an unfair trial. They, 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 wanted, that, they wanted to get this tribunal going, uh, and, and the lawyers, Swift and Katyal, wanted to prevent it with their federal lawsuit. So essentially there was, there was sort of a race going on. And, um, 
And down on Guantanamo in the fall of 2004, they, 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 uh, uh, just, just weeks after they'd made their first argument in, in, in federal court in Washington, D.C., the, the, the military tribunal got underway, and, uh, and Swift got up and, and made the, uh, the, the, this was the, these were pre, the, the pretrial hearings, and Swift got up and made their first argument, and, and uh, I, I was down there at the time, and, and uh, an MP walks in and, and hands a yellow sticky note to, to the military judge presiding over, uh, over the military trial, and uh, he bangs his gavel and, and adjourns the, the hearing, and no one has any idea what's going on. People think that, that maybe there's been a terrorist attack, or at least a threat of a terrorist attack, uh, but as it turns out, what had happened was that the federal judge, who had, uh, had heard their argument just weeks before, had told the president that he can't go ahead with these tribunals, that they were unlawful. And, uh, and from there, uh, the, the lawsuit basically made its way through the, 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 the federal system. They, they lost at the Court of Appeals and, uh, and then petitioned the Supreme Court to hear the case. And um, if, if, there were, if the odds were long against them uh, even, even sort of getting any traction in the federal courts, the odds of getting a hearing at the Supreme Court were, were extraordinarily long. Uh, just, just based on the numbers alone, the Supreme Court gets, um, gets something like 8,000 petitions a year for about the 100 cases it hears. So, uh, so, so it seemed unlikely just on that level alone. But, but um, the Supreme Court has historically been especially wary of hearing cases that deal with the president's wartime power because they don't want to be in a position of having to tell the president he can't do something that he thinks is necessary to keep the country safe. Uh, but, but they did get their petition heard, uh, and much to a lot of people's surprise, and after a lot of delay from the court, a lot of deliberation uh, among the justices about whether or not they should hear it. And, uh, and, um, and Katyal argued it. And, uh, and um, I'm now going to, uh, to uh, uh, read you um, one, one final passage, which is the passage of, of, of the day of the argument. Um, uh, but before I do that, I'm going to give you a little more background about, um, about uh, uh, Neil, Neil arguing the case. And, and that is that um, uh, many, many people thought that it was a big mistake for, for, for him to argue the case. And that is because uh, he was um, uh, an inexperienced trial lawyer. He had, uh, he, 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 while he had been a clerk on the Supreme Court, uh, he'd obviously never argued at the Supreme Court. And in fact, um, he'd really only argued a few, a few cases in his life, uh, one of which was a, uh, a speeding ticket and one of which was a landlord-tenant dispute. So, uh, so it's not surprising that, that a lot of people felt that, uh, that it was a mistake that a case of this magnitude challenging the, the, the commander-in-chief's wartime power uh, should be argued by someone who had uh, uh, had no uh, so little uh, courtroom experience, but um, uh, but but Neil was determined to argue the case, and he was uh, he had spent uh, now years immersed in this subject. He felt that he knew it better than anyone, uh, and um, he also felt uh, that um, uh, he, he, I should say he recognized that uh, that. Um, uh, that there were a lot of arguments against him, him actually making the argument before the justices. So he felt that the only way to, to, to really uh, to, to, to do it right and to, to keep the argument was to just prepare obsessively. And, uh, and, and that's what he did for, for months. He, uh, he began by taking out a legal pad and uh, writing down the names of, of all the lawyers and law professors around the country who most intimidated him. And uh, he called each and every one of them up and asked them to, to moot him, to, to grill him. 
and he flew all over the country and had moot courts uh, with, with all of these uh, various lawyers and law professors. And um, he also kept, kept uh, a copy of, of the, the case record, hundreds of pages uh, next to, uh, on, a, on a table next to his bed at night, and studied them uh, before he went to sleep so that he could commit the entire case record to memory, hundreds and hundreds of pages, because he wanted to, if asked by a justice where to, to find this or that in, in the record, he wanted to be able to, to refer not just to the, the page number, but to the specific paragraph on that page. And as it turned out, that, that in fact did happen in the argument. Uh, justice Stevens asked him where to find something, and he pointed him uh, to, the, to the very uh, spot on the very page where, where, where it was. So uh, he did all that, uh, and um, he also recognized that, uh, that he needed uh, uh, to work on his courtroom presence, that he needed to, to, to be a little more relaxed in the courtroom. So, uh, so he agreed to work with a, uh, a touchy-feely trial consultant who had been a kind of part-time sitcom actor, uh, who, uh, whose advice for Neil included lining up uh, his children's stuffed animals and, and practicing making eye contact with them as though they were the Supreme Court justices. And he also insisted that, uh, that Neil uh, sing in the shower on the morning of, of the argument because he felt that um, otherwise, his, when, when he was standing before the justices, he might be self-conscious about hearing the sound of his own voice. But if he, had, if, if, he, if he were to sing in the shower, he'd already be familiar with the sound of his own voice. It wouldn't sound unusual to him. So, uh, so uh, as you can imagine, the, the months, uh, the months that, that Neil spent preparing for this argument, it was months, um, obsessively, uh, around the clock, um, and I've only mentioned a few of the things he did, uh, just really the beginning of, of a long laundry list of uh, <laughs> obsessive compulsive behavior. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, uh, but, but the argument, the day of the argument arrived, and, uh, and I'm, I'm just gonna read you uh, the, the passage uh, where, where, uh, where he arrives at the, the courthouse on, on the day of the argument, and, and then I'll, uh, I'll, I'll finish up from there. March 28th, 2006, dawned clear and brisk in Washington. Katyal awoke early, having slept better than he expected. He felt less anxious than he'd felt in a while. In six hours, win or lose, it would all be over. He put on a dark gray suit and tie that his mother had given him for the occasion and stashed his father's wristwatch in his pocket for good luck. Katyal had received some threatening voicemail messages over the past few weeks and had hired two bodyguards for the day. They picked him up at a little after eight and drove him to the Supreme Court in his minivan while he listened to music on his iPod. The Supreme Court's tradition of humility and restraint appears to have been the last thing on the mind of the courthouse's architects. An early occupant, Justice Harlan Fisk Stone, once des described the Supreme Court building as, quote, almost bombastically pretentious. One of Stone's colleagues suggested that the only way he and his brethren could live up to the pomp of their surroundings would be to enter the courthouse on elephants. As one of the day's advocates, Katyal had been asked to enter through a side door, but he wanted to use the main entrance instead. Somewhat counterintuitively, he felt that absorbing the full grandiosity of the setting, the long marble staircase, the 16 Corinthian columns, the words equal justice under law etched into the stone below the pediment would have a calming effect, putting things in perspective for him. Whatever the stakes of Hamdan, he was still just one lawyer arguing one case in the long history of this great institution. By the time Katyal arrived, the plaza facing the courthouse was flooded with people, 
dozens of whom had spent the whole night in line waiting for tickets. Electronic devices were not permitted inside the Supreme Court, so he left his iPod and Blackberry inside the marshal's office. It was 8.45 a.m., roughly two hours before Hamdan, the second argument of the day, would be heard. The interior of the Supreme Court building, with its soaring ceilings, ornate friezes, bronze busts, and still more marble columns, is no less imposing than the building's exterior. But Katyal felt at home there. He still knew some of the security guards, and behind the, behind the counter in the cafeteria was a woman who had often made him breakfast during his clerkship. She gave him a hug and wished him luck. Arguing advocates may request a card that entitles them to roam certain parts of the Supreme Court building not open to the public. Tom Goldstein, who was uh, one, of, one of Neil's advisors on, uh, for the Supreme Court argument, had suggested to Katyal that he procure one and hole up in the law library to relax and gather his thoughts before the argument. Katyal had planned to do this, but was overtaken by an irrational fear that he might get stuck in the library, which was upstairs, and miss his argument. So when he finished eating his bagel and cream cheese, he instead did the one thing that Goldstein had urged him not to do. He went into the courtroom and listened to the argument preceding Hamdan. The lawyer at the podium, who looked to be even younger than Katyal, parried complicated questions from the bench with ease and grace, thrusting Katyal into a spiral, a fresh spiral of self-doubt. Why didn't I give the argument away? I can't answer any of these questions. Then it dawned on him that he wouldn't have to. This wasn't Hamdan. It was a health insurance case that turned on an especially obscure subsection of the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974. Katyal left the courtroom at 10.35, 25 minutes before his argument was to begin. He had not sung in the shower in the morning because he hadn't wanted to wake up Joanna, who was going to be coming to the courthouse later with his mother and sister. So he went into a stall in the bathroom of the lawyer's lounge and belted out the theme song from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. He returned to the courtroom. Chief Justice Roberts closed the prior argument. The case is submitted, rose from his black leather chair, and walked off the bench, leaving the ensuing proceedings in the hands of the court's senior most justice, John Paul Stevens. We'll hear argument in 05184, Hamdan against Rumsfeld, Justice Stevens said at 1101. Mr. Katyal, you may proceed. The lawyer who had preceded Katyal was still clearing his pages as Katyal moved to the podium. He brought with him a white binder with one sheet of paper attached to the front and another attached to the back. One sheet contained his opening statement, the other a page of typewritten notes. Taped to the side of the page of notes was a blank check, a reminder to use the resonant phrase that Justice O'Connor had penned in an opinion in 2004, a state of war is not a blank check for the president. All 500 of the courtroom seats were occupied. Moments before the argument started, Swift overheard a brief exchange directly behind him between an unlikely pair. The Pentagon's advisor for the military commissions, General Hemingway, and a human rights lawyer who was working with some of the Guantanamo detainees. They agreed that Katyal was in for a long morning. Katyal was now at the podium. Standing before the justices, he was struck by the intimacy of the setting. He took a moment to compose himself to think about his family and make eye contact with each of the justices, and began. Justice Stevens, and may it please the court. So uh, from there, of course, uh, Neil delivers the argument, and um, uh, it, it is, uh, was, was 
more or less kind of instantly recognized as 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 um, one of one of the sort of the great great arguments in in, in recent years on the court. Uh, and uh, uh, but but um, you know at that point all they could do was was sort of wait and see uh, what was going to happen. And um, Supreme Court is is uh, obviously a very old fashioned institute, and uh, they don't release their decisions on the internet. They don't. Uh, they don't even tell you when the decisions are going to be coming down. Uh, so, so if you're uh, someone with a stake in the case or someone who's just interested in knowing what's going to happen in, the, in a certain case and, and uh, you want to be there uh, when, uh, when, when the news breaks, you have to go to the courtroom. And, uh, and that's what, uh, what Neil and, and Charlie Swift did. Uh, they went uh, day in and day out for, uh, for, for weeks. Uh, they would meet outside, uh, outside the courthouse and, and walk in uh, and uh, take their seats and, and watch the justices file in and the justices would take their seats and uh, and then they would uh, proceed to announce uh, the, the, the two cases that they had decided and uh, day after day it was not the Hamdan case uh, and it wasn't in fact until the very last day of the Supreme Court's term that they that they handed down their decision in Hamdan and it was a, a sweeping victory for, for Swift and Katya and for Hamdan himself in particular. And um, it, the decision went, went really well beyond anything, uh, anything they, they had realistically expected because not only had, uh, had the, the majority of the justices declared these military tribunals illegal, uh, they had uh, gone a step further, and they had uh, made, uh, uh, made come to the conclusion that um, that the the president, even during times of war, must abide by the laws and treaties of the United States. Now, uh, this may sound somewhat self-evident, but but actually. Um, Many of the Bush administration's policies in the war on terror were built on the assumption that, that the president could circumvent these laws and treaties during the time of war. So uh, not surprisingly, the Hamdan decision set off a panic inside the Bush administration because suddenly policies uh, such, as, uh, such as the ghost prisons uh, in foreign countries where, where, uh, where uh, suspected terrorists were, were rendered and, and, uh, and, and often tortured, uh, that was now illegal. Uh, the, the warrantless uh, wiretapping program, the secret terrorist surveillance program, that was now illegal. Uh, so it was a, it was a, a huge decision and, um, and uh, not least of all, it, uh, it um, forced Congress to get involved in, uh, the, in the shape of these military tribunals. And, and basically over the, the course of the summer of 2006, Congress and the President kind of went back and forth and, uh, and uh, Congress eventually passed, uh, passed um, uh, what, what is known as the Military Commissions Act, uh, which, which authorized um, these military tribunals. And uh, a lot of people uh, still feel that, that the rules are, are, are unfair, that these guys are not getting a fair trial. But, but nevertheless, the trials went forward. And, um, and Hamdan was tried uh, just this summer, uh, finally, after, after all those years. And uh, he was, there, there were two charges brought against him. Uh, conspiracy and material support for terrorism. Uh, conspiracy was by far the more serious charge, uh, but but uh, he was he was acquitted on the conspiracy charge. He was convicted on the material support for terrorism charge, and now it came time for the government to sentence him, and uh, the uh, or rather for the military judge to sentence him, the the military jury to sentence him, and uh, the the government was asking that he be sentenced to. to 30 years to life, and, and as it turned out, the, uh, the, the jury 
sentenced him to, after time served, uh, just to say all the years he'd already spent on Guantanamo, about an additional five months. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll, um, I'll leave it there. Uh, the one last, uh, last comment uh, I'll make is, is um, you know, there's, there's been a, a lot of, uh, a lot of um, uh, criticism, um, you know, much of it justifiable, of, of the Bush administration's policies in the war on terror and, uh, and um, the, the, how our, our sort of treatment of detainees has sort of sullied America's international image and all the damage that's been done. And, and, as I said, much of this is, is, is certainly justified criticism, uh, but that's not, uh, not what this book is about. And uh, in, in a sense, it's not, not um, uh, what the Handan story is about. And, and in, in fact, it's, it's um, you know, on the contrary. Uh, to me, this, this book and this story is, is really kind of about the greatness of this country. And the fact that during a, uh, during a time of war, uh, a group of lawyers uh, one of whom is the, the child of, of, of immigrants, one of whom is a military officer, uh, could, could bring uh, a lawsuit, could bring a challenge to the President of the United States, uh, have that, that challenge heard, have that case heard, win uh, at the highest court in the land, the most powerful court uh, in, in the country, and in so doing really, really change the course of history uh, is to me a, a great, great testament to, uh, to the resilience of, of our values and the resilience of our Constitution and uh, is something we, we can all, all be proud of. Uh, and I think it's nice to have something we can all be proud of at this point. So, um, so uh, I, will, uh, I will leave it at that and um, I think Neil may have a few things to say and then, um, and then we'll take questions. Thank you. The World Beyond the Headlines lecture series is a collaborative project of the University of Chicago Center for International Studies and the International House Global Voices Program. The World Beyond the Headlines series aims to bring scholars and journalists together to consider international news stories and how these stories are covered. As a listener, you have come to rely on this program for in-depth analysis of major issues facing our country and our world. But we can only continue our nationally recognized coverage with support from you. Secure the future of World Beyond the Headlines programming by making your gift online at alumniservices.uchicago.edu slash giving. Please specify World Beyond the Headlines as the area of giving. The World Beyond the Headlines series is supported by the McCormick Foundation, the Norman Wade Harris Fund, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.